Welcome to the Dr. Wayne Dyer Radio Podcast. Discover the wisdom and remarkable insights of Dr. Dyer, world-renowned spiritual teacher and foremost authority on how the power of your mind creates your world. How are you, Dr. Dyer? I'm just great. Couldn't be better. Well, we have a a really special show today. And you might remember some of our listeners a, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the book One Mind by Dr. Larry Dossie. And I had read the book a, a little while ago when it first came out, and you just read it not too long ago. And I did. Loved I it. not only read it, I, I underlined it and took notes on it and, um, you know, read every word of it. And um, just, uh, and Larry has been somebody that I've, I think we've met on a few occasions and some of the speaking things that we've done, uh, I can do it type things uh, over the years. Um, but um, we've never really had a chance to sit down and talk. So, Well, it's a pretty amazing I message said, in the see book. See if you can find them. I know. So, yeah. I, <laughs> so I used all my contacts and uh, reached out and got a hold of Larry. And it was just perfect timing, too, because he was ready to take off on a vacation where he'd be unreachable. And I was able to track him down and get him on the show today. So Larry joins us right now. And I'm really excited to hear you talk about the one mind. So, Larry, how are you? I'm good. I would be better if I was in Maui with uh, Wayne. <laughs> we would all be better then. <laughs> well, listen, you just have to connect to the one mind and you'll be here. It's not a problem at all. <laughs> I'm there, Wayne. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Larry? I'm pretty good. i got to say, though, that Santa Fe is not so bad. I'm happy to be here. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. It's one of my favorite spots in the world. Right. Yeah. There's a place near there called Sipapu. I don't know if you know where that is. I but, do. Uh, I know where it is. You bet. Do you, yeah, I've with, um, uh, I, I went up there uh, years ago uh, and spent a week with uh, with my friend Stuart Wilde. Did you ever have a chance to meet Stuart Wilde? Yeah, and, I have. And, and, I have. Yeah, he's written lots of great books. Called one was called The Force and and so on. But we spent a week up there in Zipapu. That's a beautiful place. And Santa Fe is one. Do you, is that where your home is? Yeah, my wife and I, Barbara, have lived here about twenty one years. So uh, mm. we, we we escaped Dallas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a while back, and you know, we—I retired from the practice of internal medicine, and uh, we didn't need to live in a big city any longer. And we—we we knew Santa Fe because we came through here once or twice a year on travels uh, up and down the Rocky Mountains, and we mm. just sort of fell in love with it, and didn't think twice when we had the opportunity to move out of the big city. Oh, good for you, Larry. That's uh, I did. I did the same thing. I moved to Maui and. Uh, <clears throat> Never regretted it, not for a moment. <clears throat> Great. Well, anyway, let's uh, – and the listeners out there, I'm, uh, we're going to take some calls if we can uh, – Diane, if you can get them associated to what we're talking about today. Hold on a second. <clears throat> um, but this idea of the one mind, I mean, um, Larry Dossey to me is known as the guy who writes about prayer. Um, you've been quoted by so many people over the years with – some of your research, and that's certainly tied in with this idea of uh, of the one mind. But maybe if you could just take uh, just a few minutes to talk about the uh, oh the efficacy or the the whether or not something like just praying uh, can make a difference uh, in uh, creating what it is that you'd like in your life and to help with healings and and so often because people think that prayer very often is just uh, saying things to yourself and speaking to something I- invisible that doesn't exist out there, and then hoping that this uh, cosmic bellboy that we think of uh, as, as God is going to just sort of deliver for us whatever whatever we ask for. Yeah. Um, but you did some really hardcore scientific. We should also mention that Larry is a is a medical doctor. 
um, is, uh, you know, was a, uh, a surgeon in, uh, or was a, certainly a medica, medical person in, in Vietnam um, at the same time that my own brother was over there, who was, who was a medic, and you were a physician, uh, and is also a twin, uh, and oh, talks yeah. a lot about twins in the, uh, in the book uh, One Mind. But, the, but before we get into the One Mind, the, the, the whole idea of prayer, is it, uh, is it a waste of time? Is there some science behind uh, it can actually make a difference? You know, Wayne, I used to think that it was a waste of time, and uh, mm-hmm. when I came out of a medical school, I was uh, uh, end of the practice of internal medicine. I uh, I really would not have given uh, uh, any attention to prayer at all. I thought it was a waste of time. It couldn't compete with the use of drugs and surgical procedures. But I, I really had my comeuppance in the late 80s when uh, what we call randomized controlled trials of prayer were beginning to be done, uh, I'd never heard of anybody attempting to prove prayer in a rigorous uh, trial, but this was done uh, first in 1988 at uh, San Francisco General Hospital, and in the coronary care unit, those patients who were prayed for, who didn't even know they were receiving prayer, did a lot better clinically than people who were not assigned prayer. Uh, Mm. This really got my attention, because at that time, I wouldn't have prayed for my patients on a bed. I, I had patients in the coronary care unit all the time, and I realized in an instant that if that study were true, then I might be leaving out something really important for my patients. So in order to clarify this, I, I went on a search in the world's literature for all of the uh, studies, the decent scientific studies that had looked at prayer, and I thought I might find two or three more, but I found 140 additional studies, and that was the basis of my book, Healing Words, uh, which was published in 1993. Mm-hmm. And it revolutionized my own practice of internal medicine. I began to pray steadily for my patients every day. Uh, my goodness. Yeah, mm-hmm. I concocted my own uh, prayer ritual where I would go into my office earlier every morning and pray for patients I was about to see on hospital rounds and also for those who would be coming to my office uh, during that day. And I continued that ritual uh, until I left the practice of internal medicine many years later. The, uh, and when, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, well just, when we, yeah, go ahead. What, what, let me just say, when, when you when you say you were praying, what were you doing? What 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 is the act of praying to you? Well, I I have a very wide open definition of what prayer is. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, communication with the absolute. Uh, mm-hmm. However, we want to uh, term the absolute, whether it's God, Goddess, all or something else. And I think that prayer can be done silently. I don't think we have to make a long laundry list of uh, uh, wishes or wants, or we certainly don't have to tell the universe how to behave. I, I just uh, entered into a state of awareness uh, of total silence and openness, asking for a higher wisdom than my own to intervene in a particular situation. I, I didn't spell it out. Uh, I invoked a way of prayer that's being called uh, non-directed prayer, where mm-hmm. you just invite uh, the universe to achieve the, the best outcome for that situation without telling what that right. might be. A lot and, of people and, don't find that very satisfactory. You know, they want to direct the outcome and, and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I never felt comfortable doing that myself, Wayne. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I I, I think of prayer very similar as, as you do. It's the, but uh, in in doing your review of the research and, and all of that, there's actually more evidence out there that uh, that that prayer, collective prayer, or individualized prayer, 
um, is is more impactful than all of the studies that re, you know say that it isn't. And I think that's true about what you, the great revelation I had of your new book, which I just love, and I'm going to be promoting big time uh, at my talks and so on, is uh, is the that the, that the research out there is is more on the side of the presence of of a universal one mind. Uh, and an absolute intelligence that's greater than all of us that we're all connected to, then the evidence is for it to, you know, some, some say that's just not science. It's yeah. just simply not science. But I think you you come from a pretty different position on that, don't you? Yeah, I do. You know, unless mm. our minds were connected in some way, I don't think we uh, could uh, produce any evidence whatsoever that uh, prayer works or healing thoughts or compassion work at a distance. For that mm-hmm. to happen, we must have some sort of intrinsic connection. Otherwise, it would be impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you how good the science is in this field. Back in '93, when I published that book, Healing Words, uh, there were only three medical schools in the entire United States out of 125 uh, that had any coursework looking at these studies in remote healing, prayer-based healing, and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, as we speak, uh, around 90 of those medical schools have opened up uh, places in the curriculum where they openly discuss this evidence. And that's a landmark development, Mm. really. I mean, I would not have predicted that was going to happen 20 years ago. It's just great to see hardcore scientific establishments such as medical schools coming around and becoming increasingly open to these ideas, which a few years ago would have been thought insane. Yeah, from what I and I have many many friends who are medical doctors uh, say that uh, another thing that they don't they hardly ever touched on in medical school was something as basic as, as simple nutrition. You know that uh, you know <laughs> that the food that we're eating, you know, impacts us in a big way. I've been pretty big on this this GMO thing, and I think I think I've decided that GMO stands for God move over. You know, it's <laughs> you know for. For, for millennia, you know, the, the seeds from this generation produce the, the, ne- the next generation and so on. And now we've got Monsanto or somebody stepping in and, and telling us how to, you know, that we'll take care of that for you. But uh, talking about remote healing and so on. So I, I don't know if you know this, if you're aware of this, but you know, you know who John of God is oh, in, yeah. uh, in Brazil. And uh, I had an amazing uh, remote healing. And, it, and the, the only thing that can that I can attribute to that is the is the presence of some kind of an intelligence or a one mind or something that uh, that connected me to because I was here in Maui and uh, John of God and the entities and so on were down in uh, in Abidjania down in, in Brazil. And um, I had uh, a diagnosis of leukemia. Um, and it's uh, it's gone from my body. There's no, there's no evidence of it. There's no presence of it whatsoever. And it all happened in a, an amazing, amazing experience. I wrote about it in one of my later books. But what is your take on, 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 on this person and this, this whole idea of remote healing? Well, I think there's enough evidence that has accumulated around John of God over the years that this should be taken extremely seriously. You know, he's sort of a one-man healing uh, uh, operation. Uh, there, there. Uh, is a way that doctors have of dismissing all of that because they just say, well, you know, those are just stories. They're just anecdotes. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be taken seriously. But what has happened, Wayne, over the last few years is that uh, at least 120 additional studies have been done in what we call randomized control situations, which is the way you really test something like a new medication. You have a treatment group that gets the, the, the prayer and uh, healing right. interventions, and then a group that is not assigned them, and 
the thing is that this uh, produces results not just in people, Wayne, but in animals. And this mm. is where this data really begins to be extremely powerful, because if you can pray for the healing of a cancer in a rat and it goes away uh, in a huge group of rats, you can't say that those rats were just uh, thinking positively or were subject mm-hmm. to the placebo response and that sort of thing. This is a hugely in- influential body of evidence. And, uh, you know, your experiences being healed with leukemia is just another data point that uh, this stuff really does work. Yeah. You know what really got me fascinated about this? Because I wrote a book many years ago called You'll See It When You Believe It. Um, and one of the one of the chapters in there was just I just had this idea. It's just called oneness. I took like these seven words like synchronicity and oneness and forgiveness and just and just wrote about this was when I was making a shift away from writing about psychology um, and all the things that I had been trained in into this you know, in, into the world of spirituality and, and, and higher consciousness. And one of the things that uh, got me really thinking about it was just looking at the remote control on, on my television set. Yeah. You know, that there is, you know, that we don't have any difficulty with an awareness that we can program a machine to uh, read through invisible signals that we can't see any place, uh, we can't get a hold of, we, we, with our senses, they're, they're, we're immune to them, and yet we go all day long. We have one machine programmed to another machine through invisible intelligence making things happen all the time. And then as soon as we try to make that connection to ourselves, and we're really sort of like electrical m- machines anyway, these bodies of ours, um, and, th- and then we say, well, that's, that sort of thing is impossible. The, I don't know if that awareness ever came to you with the, that uh, there certainly is lots of evidence out there that in, there is a connection between things that is invisible that we can't get a hold of that's operating all the time. Well, that's I mean, exactly right. You know, and I, I just think uh, one way to put it is that nature did not design us to be apart. Uh, everywhere we look, from the electromagnetic domain, which you just mentioned, to the way consciousness operates between individuals at a great distance, uh, mm. the key word that comes through is you've already used, and it's oneness. It's mm. a kind of unity and a connectedness that uh, permeates everything. I think mm. we've been bamboozled in our culture to think of uh, that we operate exactly the opposite, because we have so much emphasis now on individuality and self-responsibility, all of which are good as far as they go, but they leave out the intrinsic uh, element of oneness and connectedness without which we just don't function very well as human beings. That's so true. I can remember many, many years ago, uh, well, my, my daughter's now 47 years old, so um, it, she, was a, she was less than a year old, and uh, my wife and I, we were living in Detroit, and we, I was upstairs. I was studying for my uh, for my PhD, uh, reading and turning pages and making noise and the light on and everything. My wife was lying next to me, sound asleep, uh, and just a, that heavy kind of sleep breathing that I absolutely knew that she was, you know, that I wasn't disturbing her and she couldn't be awakened. And our daughter, who was less than a year old. Uh, was downstairs uh, in another part of the house, a part that you you couldn't hear at all. And I heard just a slight little cough. She just went (coughs) like that. And my wife's eyes opened up. She looked up at me and she said, go check on Tracy, see if she's okay. Now, what was happening at that moment? Because I, I, I think it's interesting to just talk about these kinds of things and to read what you've written about here. But to the subtitle of your book is how our individual mind is part of a greater consciousness. And this is the key thing and why it matters. 
And, and, and so why does this matter? How can we, how can we use this intelligence that, you know, when I tell that story, um, you know, everybody out there in the country who's listening to this, the hundreds of thousands of people who are listening, I can hear people, I can see people nodding right now yeah. saying, oh, yeah, I've had that kind of an experience as well. It's almost like a universal experience. And yet when it comes to, you know, making use of it and, and making it work for us and, and, uh, and connecting ourselves uh, this way, we immediately say, well, uh, it's not scientific and therefore it just doesn't work. Well, I think it is highly scientific and uh, I go into many scientific uh uh, vectors that I think uh, nail this down in a very solid way scientifically in the book. Uh, let me just say that uh, I have had many experiences, such as you just described, uh, between your wife and, and your child. Uh, I'm an identical twin, and, and my twin brother and I have had experiences all of our life at a distance of shared thoughts and even shared physical symptoms uh, at a distance. Uh, and I'm married to a twin, and she and her twin brother have had these things uh, in spades all their lives. So I've had a long interest in how these connections mm. might operate. Uh, the thing is, uh, it, it, it would appear to me that our minds are what I call non-local, which means that they're, they're not confined to our brains and our bodies. Uh, that's the modern scientific neurophysiological way of thinking about things. You know, our thoughts mm -hmm. are stuck in our brain, and they don't venture at a distance. So things like you just described between your wife and your child are, in principle, impossible. They're not impossible. There are control studies now which show that people can apprehend other people's thoughts, not only at a distance, but uh, outside the present moment. Uh, we are beyond talking about people's simple, single experiences now, and this has been taken into the laboratory. How does it work? Well, it's just a function of consciousness. Uh, we have now evidence that even subatomic particles in the quantum domain can remain in contact at a distance, even when they're separated to the farthest reaches of the universe. If this and it's happens, not really cause and effect either, is it? It's no, not it one. It's not one. One subatomic particle uh, does something, and then it's another one a million miles away or whatever reacts to it. It's something very different, isn't it? Yes, it is. And what it is is that they behave as a single particle, even though they're separated mm. by you know millions of miles or if, mm. theoretically at the other end of the universe. So if this uh, sort of thing can operate at the quantum level between subatomic particles. In principle, there's no reason to deny that this could happen between uh, human beings. Uh, it's been put to the test. People can convey information in great detail uh, between each other, even though they're on the other side of the planet. Uh, it's just simply a fact. I think that we await a full explanation of how this works, and I don't even think that our science is going to be, as it's currently constituted, I don't think it's up to explaining how this happens. But just because we don't have a full explanation doesn't mean we should deny the phenomenon that we can prove uh, exists. So that's where we are. And I think mm. it's, it's a matter of oneness, unity, connectedness, because, mm. Wayne, that's just the way the universe is constituted. 
Yeah, that's it's you know that seems to be for, you know a, a realization for me. I'm in the process right now of of accumulating, um, and you wrote a chapter in this. Your thirteenth chapter is called Early Oneness, and it's always fascinated me because I have eight children, and I'm a, and I have lots of grandchildren, and I'm around uh, little children every single day, and I'm just fascinated. I have a, a friend of mine who who actually she, she works for me. She's my assistant here in Maui, and she has a little boy. His name's Marcus, and he's. Uh, He's about 18 months old, and she asked him one day, um, "What, uh, what, what is God like? You know, what? Because what, I always talk about this, like this early sense of, because you know, the, the, remember the great poet uh, William Wordsworth, who said, our, 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 <clears throat> our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting.'" heaven lies about us in our infancy and that these children who just come into this world are so you know have, have just been there so to speak even if there's no such thing as time they're like they're right there and so many reports of children uh, be, being able to uh, you know tell stories of uh, oh, of reincarnation or about remembrances and families and so on and and she said to Marcus what is God like and he just raised his arms up like he just raised and then she said well what what does he look like and this little boy who doesn't speak, uh, he only speaks in just individual words, you know, he'll say, okay, or mom, or whatever. He said, light. Oh, my. You know, just just light. Oh God my. is light. <laughs> and uh, and so I put that out on my Facebook page, and I, and I asked people if they would uh, send me uh, examples and stories, if they had any, of uh, what very, very young children um, have said ab ab about... Uh, you know about life before this life and so on and that's got to be that's got to be, have something very strongly to do with uh you know with with the oneness that you're speaking about with the one mind uh did you did you find that when you did the research on this and oh, and, and some of the uh stories in the book that I came across uh are really stunning uh because of my interest uh in what happens between identical twins i'm sort of drawn to those because of personal reasons and experience but right one of these uh stories uh happened between four-year-old twin girls uh and this was the case that was reported out of northern spain a few years back the uh, long story short uh one of the uh, parents took one of these twin girls off several miles to visit the grandparents while the other mm -hmm. little twin girl stayed home to help her mother with uh, chores, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, the little girl who stayed home touched a red-hot iron and erupted in a big blister, a second-degree burn on a particular mm -hmm. part of her hand. As it turned out, at the same moment, the other little twin girl, who was tens of miles away at the grandparents' house, erupted also at the same moment on the same hand with a second-degree burn that was identical to that of her twin sister. Uh, this, this is how weird the oneness uh, is at times. It, mm -hmm. It's almost theatrical in its uh, its, hmm. its, its its weirdness. And I, I think we ought to pay attention to these things. There is no way under the sun that we can explain these things without bringing in some great degree of connectedness and oneness between people that just violates uh, spatial, spatial separation. You know, in some weird way, we're hooked up together, mm. and uh, that's just we are. And when you like, you know, people ask me like, uh, what what is it that gets to you? You know, what 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 bugs you? What what uh, annoys you? What are the things that you know you really find frustrating or hard? And I, you know, you watch the news, you listen to all of the kind of stuff that's going on now. I mean, I wrote a book about the 
about Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, you know, 2,500 years ago, where he decided to leave the warring states uh, because he just couldn't get across to the people that the idea of enemy uh -huh. and the idea of fighting yeah. uh, each other was just so inconsistent with our original nature, which which is what we are. You know that we, you know, the, the they, in the Course in Miracles it says the memory of God comes to the quiet mind. You know, it's like, uh, and, and the mind at war with itself remembers not eternal gentleness. It's like, it's almost like a remembering uh, process of, of going back in the, you know, my friend Deepak Chopra would often say when we would, we, we spoke together, we toured the world a few years, many years ago uh, together and did different stages together. And he used to say that quantum physics is not only stranger than you think it is, it's stranger than you can think. Yes. And it's it's almost as if we don't know how to think in these kinds of ways. But then I, I just, in fact, I don't know about you, but I just have, I find myself less and less being even willing to listen and watch the news and to watch stories about beheadings and to watch, you know, you know, the, the ways in which Lao Tzu 2,500 years ago said, you know, this is just inconsistent with who we are as a people. I can't, I don't want to do that anymore. He dictated the Tao Te Ching, those 81 verses, uh, and, and here we are 2,500 years ago, uh, later, and the, the whole history of, of humanity, the last century was the most violent uh, century on, on, on our planet. Um, uh, that we, if, if we really understood what you write about so brilliantly, so beautifully in, in, your, in your new book, One Mind, um, we, we wouldn't even be able to, to have this violence in war, not only uh, collectively in wars, you know, but different cultures, but even within ourselves and within our communities and with our families. It's like this seems to be like the, the answer to the salvation of, uh, of, of, of humanity. I could not agree more. And I can tell from the tone in your voice that you share my sense of urgency about mm. the uh, fate of the Earth and about whether or not we're going to survive as a species unless we awaken to our oneness. Uh, I, I treasure the comment of uh, Alice Walker, the great novelist, who said, mm. anything we love can be saved. And so I think the mm. challenge for us humans is whether or not we can awaken to our oneness and our unity uh, and actually reform the golden rule from do unto others as you would have them do unto you to something like be kind to others because in some sense they are you. Mm. I think our fate as a species on this particular planet hinges on whether or not we can awaken to our oneness. Uh, I don't think time is on our side. There is a sense of urgency and emergency even. But I, I'm an optimist about this. I, I happen to believe that we are going to awaken and that one thing we have now that our ancestors, such as Lao Tzu, did not have, they had experiences and philosophy, but we also have hard science pointing to our indissoluble oneness with one another. And I think that is just huge. I had the opportunity yeah. once to uh, talk to a great, uh, great uh, physicist about uh, whether or not we're going to make it or not, and... Uh, uh, he thought and thought and thought, and finally he said, yes, Larry, we'll make it barely. And I, mm. <laughs> that yeah. pretty much sums up my view. I think we're going to squeak by. But I think yeah, we will, and I think that... Uh, I think so, too. I, I mean, Einstein had this observation once. He said, I don't know if what, what weapons will be used to fight World War Three." But if, uh, but I can tell you for sure that World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. Right. 
Uh, and, and in other words, we'll destroy ourselves and have to start all over again. Yep. Uh, well, I think we'll order... pull back from the brink. That, that physicist I was uh, talking about is uh, the physicist David Bohm. Oh, sure. Who actually uh, mm. endorsed in his writings this idea of unitary consciousness. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and in the book, I quote uh, Bohm and several other physicists, such as Erwin Schrodinger, who just flat out came out and said, that in, in essence, there is only one mind. Uh, so uh, it's sort of the point all over again that these are not just philosophical ideas from, you know, the, the ancient past, but some of the hotshot physicists of the 20th century took this idea of the single unitary one mind to heart. And I think that's where our salvation is going to lie as a species, the awakening to that realization. And and But individually, I mean, um, doesn't it start with, uh, you know, this this whole idea of divine love is, is that, that if what we have inside of us is a love that never changes and, and a love that never varies, the kind of love that that we receive from our source of being, whatever we want to call that invisible source from which all things originate and to which all things return, yeah. um, and, and almost to stay aligned with it or to stay in harmony with uh, with that and to be able to send to send out you know love because that's a representation of oneness. I mean, oneness is an, just another synonym for love, isn't it? It all comes down to love, Wayne. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. we can slice it and dice it any uh, number of ways, yeah. but it all does come down to love. I mean, I mm. uh, D.H. Lawrence said once that uh, the opposite of love is uh, not hate. The opposite of love is individuality. Mm. In other words, it's separateness. It's erecting boundaries between ourselves and other people. With love, mm. those boundaries and those separations fall away. Uh, but yeah, I can hear the people because I, you know, I have this. I'm a very public person, like you are, and I have, uh, you know, f- people commenting on Facebook pages and all of that. And I can hear their responses to what takes place in in Gaza and what is taking place in ISIS and ISIL over there. And, the, and the, you know, do we send do we send love or do we have to go in and like a cancer cut these uh, these particles that are not connected to the whole or don't have a sense of of their uh, of their one night oneness themselves uh do we cut them out or do, do we bomb the hell out of them how do how do we deal with the, this in our own minds are we able to send love out there because uh, well i think uh, if we don't send love we're sunk if we try to do this yeah. just from the point of view of hatred and vengeance then uh mm. it's all over not only for them but us as well in the long run uh, mm. i think righteous indignation is uh, possible jesus uh demonstrated that by uh, denouncing the money changers in the temple and running them out with a uh, good whipping. So mm-hmm. uh, so uh, sternness is not uh, incompatible with the spiritual traditions, in, in my view. So uh, we may indeed have to be very, very firm. But I think that uh, we can simultaneously do that from the standpoint of uh, spiritual awareness and mm-hmm. love and compassion in the sense that a loving parent can discipline a wayward child. So I don't think it's all love versus all war. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. uh, these things can complement each other. But it's what we have in our hearts, isn't it? I, I, the Dalai Lama once said, it was just at a talk of his, and he said, if we took every child on the planet at the age of five, and we had them meditate for one hour, and you talk a lot about the power and importance of meditation in your book, um, that if we had them just meditate, just get quiet and, and focus on compassion, yep. nothing more, then in one, he said, in one generation, 
we could eliminate all of the violence and the hatred on our planet in a generation. And I think it's also important to point out that uh, uh, if we want to change, uh, let's say, a culture, a nation, or even a world, it's not necessary to convert 51% of the people over to our side. Uh, there are a lot of studies now that look at huge social changes in populations, and now it's estimated that uh, enormous uh, pervasive social change can occur when only about 10% of the population come over to the new view. Mm. So I think it's important to realize this, that, we don't, that the job is not as big as we may think it is sometimes. We, we don't have to convince everybody on the virtues of love yeah. or to make a planetary difference. Yeah. Did you know David Hawkins? Yes. Yeah. I mean, he passed away just recently, about a yeah. year ago, uh, power versus force and so on. And um, he he did a lot of uh, a lot of work on you know lo looking at the ver various kinds of energies and and how you know different thoughts like shame is such a low e energy and, and and what it does for us. But he suggested that if uh, it, let's say the number is 200, that uh, 200 represents like low negative energies that's going to impact the, the the planet in a negative way. Uh -huh. uh, he said that if that if if a person can just elevate their consciousness to a place moving more towards divine love, just to get to 300, he said a person who moves 100 points up on that scale uh, can impact uh, and, and compensate for, you know, several hundred thousand people who are operating at lower levels. And then as he moved up, he said, when you get up to someone like a Mother Teresa, who calculated in, in his calculations that's uh, something like 599 or 600, he's very into putting all put numbers on all of these things through through this muscle testing and so on. Uh, he said, like a Mother Teresa, just just her presence, just her presence in uh, on the planet, can can overrule or compensate for several hundred million people uh, who are operating at these low levels. And he ultimately said, if we could get one person uh, who was living at what he called Christ consciousness, or you know, Siddhi consciousness, the you know, Brahman consciousness, the highest consciousness there is, if we had just one person, he said they could they could over they could compensate for all of the negativity that's on the planet. I, I, I always found that just a very positive way of thinking. This is something that I can do. Well, it also is an affirmation that we don't have to change the world out there. We better start right where we are right. on ourselves. You know, I mm. think that we're well on the way, Wayne. If you look at, for example, the number of people who have had near-death experiences in the United States, which uh, they come back uh, from utterly transformed in the way they see their connectedness mm. with other people, filled with love and compassion for just about everyone. Uh, there have been now 15 million Americans who say they have had uh, life-changing near-death experiences, and that uh, grows every day with resuscitations mm. in modern hospitals and so on. So we're not starting at ground zero here. We have a huge backlog of people who have burst through to this new awareness of oneness and love and compassion. It's important to, to I think, at least... Uh, mention these numbers because, again, it's just one way of uh, uh, stirring up our optimism and hope and meaning instead of the opposite. Yeah. In the Course of Miracles, they, they speak a lot about, the, uh, you know, love and fear. It's, it's, it, you know, everything that is love cannot be fear and everything that is fear cannot be love. Uh -huh. um, and my experience the night, uh, it was almost four years ago now, that I had the remote healing with John of God through the, with the leukemia, and uh, is is that the, 
these entities did not come in and, 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 and take the leukemia out and, and, and remove it. What they did, it seems to me, um, because the morning after I had what they call the removal of the sutures, like a, a, a week after the, uh, the, the intervention of the, of, the, of the psychic surgery, whatever, um, that morning, uh, my life changed so dramatically, Larry. It was like I my two of my children were here. They're in their 20s. And um, I looked at them, and I'd never seen my children look that way before. I had so much love for, for my son and my daughter. Uh, the, and I looked out at the ocean, I, and, and I looked at the and the ocean looked like a, uh, like a big bowl of love soup. I mean, it was just, and that I looked up at the clouds, and the formations of the clouds looked different, and the trees. And then within a week, um, it was gonna, my 71st birthday was May 10th. This occurred on, on uh, April the 28th, I know, because it was the, my mother's birthday. She was alive. She was 95 at that time. And um, I... Uh, I was in San Francisco. I, I left Mao and I went to San Francisco, and everything in my life had changed. Um, and I was doing a film about finding my father. It was Unforgiveness, uh, called My Greatest Teacher. I was staying at the St. Francis Hotel, and I woke up that morning on my birthday. It was May 10th, and I walked out to uh, to Union Square uh, about 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, where there's a lot of homeless people. I'm sure you're familiar with that area. Yeah. Uh, and there was like these little old ladies reaching through, uh, you know, the garbage and taking plastic bottles out. And I would stop and talk to them. And uh, the, the one lady was from Laos, and she told me what about her life and so on. And, and I had gone down to the... Um, in the lobby of the hotel to, to get just to get some money and I got a couple of thousand dollars in, in $50 bills uh, and I just my whole birthday it was the only I've never had a birthday like that ever since although my, since then I've been doing the same thing on my birthdays but all I wanted to do on my birthday um, was to, to, to give out love to help people homeless people to put my arms around them to talk to them and I did it all day long from uh, 6 o'clock in the morning to about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and it was like what I think happened is that that whatever that psychic surgery, whatever that was, it was the removal of the fear because the word leukemia and the word cancer is so loaded with, you know, dread and fear and, you know, anxiety and stress and so on. And it's almost as if they removed that. Um, and, re and when you remove fear, the only thing that is left, once all the fear is gone, the only thing that is left is, is, is love. And my life has been one of uh, living from a place of divine love. I, I just can't seem to do enough for others and want to give more away and want to be more to everyone, including the horror stories that I watch on television uh, when I see the news and so on. It's like it's it's that kind of uh, connection to the one mind, because it seems to me that the one mind you know, just understanding even something as simple as oneness. So what does oneness mean? You know, the, you know, that, that, you know, to uh, try to imagine ourselves in a world in which the, the opposite of, uh, uh, of, of joy, which is sadness, it doesn't exist, that all there is is joy. And the opposite of love, which might be fear or hatred, or as you said, individuality, is um, the, the, the op that opposite is, uh, th doesn't exist. It's just, it's nothing but love. Yeah. It's almost as if this this intelligence can't even deal with conflict. I mean, why you wouldn't pray with conflict because if God is really oneness, uh, c conflict can't even exist. It only comes because of our our, our connection to two-ness. 
So I mean, this is a long way of asking you to comment on this whole idea of fear and love and removing the fear from us and trying to, to be beings of love and beings of light wherever we go, whoever we're interacting with. And ultimately, the Dalai Lama will be right, I think. We'll just we'll, we'll, we'll have compassionate hearts instead of well, hearts I, filled with... I could not agree more. It's, it's a beautiful story about the eradication of leukemia and the eradication mm. of fear. I, Wayne, I'm going to nominate you for sainthood. I mean, I think... <laughs> you embody, I'm a long way from there. <laughs> you embody so much of what we, mm. uh, we see as necessary for our, for our salvation here on Earth. I think it's important to dwell on stories like yours because a lot of people think that breakthroughs in personal understanding are just limited to the psyche and the emotions and uh, it's sort of a spiritual, psychological transformation, which is wonderful. But as you point out, this is associated with often with life-saving physical uh, changes as well, the eradication of uh, fatal diseases, leukemia, and so on. I have a file drawer of stories that people have sent me, and I'm sure you have too, uh, of the eradication of illness uh, as a consequence of some sort of psycho-spiritual breakthrough where they cease to see themselves as separate from other other people and enter into this blessed state of oneness that, that I've tried to write about. Mm. I, I just think that uh, we underestimate what this breakthrough in understanding can lead to sometimes. I, I mm. think it's survival-oriented. Uh, uh, really, and I think that these evidences of uh, people who, uh, for example, have precognitive dreams, just as a single example of an oncoming, oncoming illness of a breast lump that uh, they didn't yes. know existed, these, these things are sequelae. They accompany these feelings of oneness and breakthrough and love. These are not just wow. uh, emotional uh, transformations. They are physical transformations as well. I don't know if you've heard about this, but Larry Burke, who is an academic radiologist who is a friend of mine, is about to publish a, a series of uh, uh, cases in which women uh, had uh, dreams in which an ancestor came to them, usually a grandfather, and told them that there was a serious illness with a breast and revealed to these women the exact spot in the breast where the problem was. So all of these women went to the doctor. The doctor can't find the lump. Uh, the mammogram is normal, but the woman insists on a biopsy, and the biopsy proves uh, to, uh, to the biopsy locates the cancer that they were warned about by their ancestor in the dream. Th th these are right, shocking, but, uh, almost theatrical kind. I of think you wrote about that, didn't you? And because I've, I've read that story just recently, I think yeah. it was with, yeah, yeah, I, I did, one... I did write about it, and uh, yeah. what it says to me is that. You know, we don't have to do all of this alone. There are be beings and creatures and ancestors uh, and spirits out there who can assist us on these breakthroughs in understanding. Uh, mm. I find that very comforting because uh, it suggests that uh, we're stronger than we think, and uh, we're stronger than we think because we're united with consciousnesses and minds that are greater than our individual minds. 
And it's, it's, you mentioned the dream, and the, you know, it's like that dream state. We almost act like there's like two states of consciousness here. There's like this waking consciousness uh, in which there's cause and effect, in which I have to, you know, I have to plod through, and I'm I'm stuck in this body, and I have to work. And then there's this one third of our life, one third of the time that we're here on this planet, uh, we go into, we leave our body, we just uh, let it lay there on the bed, and off we go into this world. And anything that we place our attention on. Um, it becomes our reality. If you, I always say, if you, if you want to get a brand new car and you want to test drive it, you don't have to bother getting up and getting dressed and going and negotiating and talking and all of the stuff that's involved in going to buy a new car. Is in your dream state for one third of your life, just to put your thoughts on that, and there you are. And people in near-death experiences report this. I don't know if you're familiar with Anita Morjani and Dying oh, yes, to Be Me. Uh-huh. Uh, but she reports this. This is a, she said that that be, the other realm is a place in which all you ha- wherever you place your attention, that's what that's that's almost your locomotive. That's your train to get to there, just, just by having that thought. And one of the things that you write about here, and I want to quote this, and then see if we can just take a couple of calls, Diane, if there's anybody sure. calling in on on these um, things we're talking about. But you say in here that. The open mind, or the one mind rather, thrives on uncertainty, on unpredictability and freedom. It is open to life, to possibility and endless variety. The surest way to doom our fruitful interaction with the one mind is to concretize it and the process of entry, giving it a specific definite domain and trying to make it local instead of non-local i mean isn't that really the, the real core of everything that you've discovered and, and this book is like a, i think the last 40 or 50 pages are all the references i mean you really did a thorough thorough job in uh, looking at all the research that's out there i mean you can't read this book and not con- conclude it with i am going to start connecting myself to this one mind of which i am absolutely uh, connected to at all times if I can get rid of this local idea of uh, who I am and my individuality. And the wonderful thing, Wayne, is that we don't have to manufacture this one mind connectedness. It already exists. I mean, it's it's a matter of uh, setting the stage for this awareness and just allowing it to unfold. Uh, mm. uh, and it's our natural, uh, our natural legacy. I mean, it's who we are. We don't have to uh, manufacture it and bring it into being. We just have to open mm. up to it. One of the people who was very helpful to me about understanding how to access the one mind was Angie Arrow. And I don't know if you uh, met her. She was a social epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. But she talked about the four rules of life. <laughs> and the first one, she said, is just simply show up. Uh, the second mm-hmm. is uh, pay attention. Uh, the third is tell the truth. And the fourth is and this is the hard one, don't be attached to results. Mm. In other words... Detachment from outcome, yeah. Yeah, just and that's what I mean by staying open to mm. uh, the unexpected and not trying to tell the universe how to behave and, and just simply open up to epiphanies or sudden mm. awarenesses, however the universe wants to display mm. itself to us. When right. we say, here I am, I'm ready, mm. you know, and uh, that's when the magic can happen. You say further in this section here, and, and, and I was reading from this, is you say one sets an intention. Um, by the way, I get a royalty on that word. I wrote a book called The Power of Intention. I own that word, so we'll have to talk about okay. that. <laughs> one, one sets an intention, then ushers the conscious mind out of the way. 
This is why the most spectacular manifestations of the one mind, like revelations and epiphanies and creativity, occur when the striving rational mind has been bypassed. And then you go into things like reverie and meditation and dreams and non-activity. Um, it's like we always think that there has to be a doer, doesn't it? There's a doer behind everything. But, uh, you know, as Lao Tzu said, you're, you're not doing anything. You're just being done, you know. And the Tao, he said, the Tao does nothing. It does nothing. Yet it leaves nothing undone. You know, you can't find what's growing your fingernails when you go to bed and wake up in the morning. They're a little longer. You can't find it. You can't find what opens the rose, you know. Um, uh, so it's like that we got to get past this idea of uh, I'm the doer and I got to make this happen and re just recognize that we're connected to it. To find out more about Dr. Wayne Dyer or any other Hay House author, please visit hayhouse.com. Thank you for listening.